0: We might have hit the peak. We might be there. We might be riding that wave. April pandemics bring May flowers. And that's what I've always said. All right. Ever since I was a kid, that's a saying that I, that me and my parents, we said around the house. And that's just how we did it. Episode 76, the state of the universe. Thank you for tuning in. Appreciate you being here. Featuring the great Peter Haas. He is the associate director of the Brown University Humanity Centered Robotics Initiative. And we have him on today to talk about something that will realistically dictate every single one of our lives in some way and it probably already is artificial intelligence everything from your banking to your mortgage to your college acceptance to your criminal sentencing all of it no matter what systems you're involved in unless you're out there you know uh, in a bunker somewhere, which you might be because you're quarantined, you're not allowed outside, you gotta wear a mask, you gotta put a suit on, you gotta wear a B-suit, you gotta put a jar on your head, you gotta put a fishbowl on your feet, you can't go outside, you gotta cover up, you gotta plug your nose with cotton balls so you can't even breathe, don't take ibuprofen, do take ibuprofen, no one knows what's happening, everything's off limits, everything's on limits, no one knows, alright? But what we do know is that AI dictates your life, but people don't understand it, okay? It's dictating your life in a way that even the creators don't know how it's working in some cases that's why we're talking to peter haas today peter haas has spent a career in this field he was the co-founder and coo of zac sense a uav manufacturer working on lidar mapping and autonomous navigation he's had experience in a wide range of applications of artificial intelligence and he touts one message the message is we need to better understand how artificial intelligence is working and we need to set some precedents of the way in which it should be built. It should not be built as a black box because black boxes are dangerous. Instead, we should know how these things are working before we put them in large-scale implementations that are affecting millions of people. So we talk about that. We go through the ways in which AI is controlling your life and the ways in which it could be dangerous to your life and the advancement of you in the world that you live in, even today. And the way that it has been dangerous, say, over the past decade or two decades. Okay, we talk about that. Number two, how will it evolve if we don't start paying it? One of the craziest things that Peter and I talked about is this idea of uh, telerobotics. I don't even know what to call it. Essentially... Robots are not necessarily very good at having general intelligence, and we talk a lot about that. Robots are very good at handling repetitive tasks over and over again with the same inputs, very good at it. So, there will likely be a situation in the future where robots are doing American jobs, such as cooking in the back of a McDonald's, but they're being telecontrolled by someone in India in a warehouse. Picture a warehouse full of people who have VR goggles on, And they have little virtual reality, little sticks in their hands. And they are controlling a robot doing an actual job in America. Isn't that an insane prospect? That blows my mind, and it's just around the corner. So we talk about the ways in which artificial intelligence and machine learning will revolutionize jobs. And how do we handle that as a culture? You know, if you think the pandemic's bad for the economy, wait until robots take over it's a big deal, and we discuss a bunch of it. Thank you for tuning in, people. Please rate the show five stars on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe on YouTube, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, subscribe wherever you listen, okay? Keep coming back. We do an episode every week. If, you, if you're if you not here, it's because uh, it's cause either number one, the only viable excuse, really, and I, I do accept doctor's notes, is if you got COVID-19. And if you don't have COVID-19 and you're not tuning in every week, then what are you doing? I mean, it's a, it's a legitimate question. If you don't have COVID-19 and you're not tuning in every single Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, whenever the episode was live, or Monday, or Friday, or Saturday, or Sunday, then what are you actually doing? And, you know, I'm tempted to say that this pandemic might even be a little bit of your fault if you fall in that category. Join the mailing list, thestateoftheuniverse.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You know the drill. Please do that. Go to thestateoftheuniverse.com for all the links, all the stuff, everything you need to know. Thank you for tuning in, people. And give it up for the great, the great Peter Haas. Peter Haas, I have a problem, okay? When I loaded up Zoom today, the computer told me I should consider touching up my appearance, (laughs) meaning I should click the little button on Zoom that says touch up my appearance, and it apparently gets rid of blemishes and makes my teeth whiter. Okay, I unchecked it. But that's a problem for me, Peter. Why is the computer trying to tell me I'm ugly? I don't like that.
1: Well, well, computers and algorithms are going to be telling you a lot of things in the future. So, I mean, this might be something that you need to get used to. Yeah, Uh, because (laughs) this is this is the direction we're going in and i'll talk more about that later on but um yeah it's it's definitely we are moving into an algorithmic world that is being shaped by algorithms and it's going to take conscious resistance to that to be able to push back and, and create different structures
0: yeah so i wanted to bring up something you've you've spent a Pretty much an entire career in the field of robotics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, the buzzwords, right? And I wanted to bring up a particular quote that I pulled from a TED talk of yours. And the quote is, I used to work in UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles, and all I could think seeing these things is that someday somebody's going to strap a machine gun to these things and they're going to hunt me down in swarms. Now, uh... I assume you're not actually thinking that uh, anyone's going to hunt you down Black Mirror style. Um, But the sentiment is real. The sentiment is that uh, you have some technology, which at the time might seem pretty, I don't want to say mundane, but it seems uh, relatively safe. And it's going to be eventually exploited. So I'm curious, like, in your career trajectory, when did you start to look at technology this way and think, this could be exploited
1: So the thing that really opened my eyes was not in AI or robotics per se, but was actually an experience in infosec um, okay. and uh, information security. Um, so so cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, I grew up with the early internet. Um, so I I was on bbs's in the late 80s and i was one of the early users of the world wide web in the 90s and back then there was a sense of community and trust like things like the well and sf Mm -hmm. uh, were, were cyber communities that grew up and it wasn't an adversarial situation i remember um in the early 2000s like finding my first malware and realizing that the things could get really adversarial on dark. And um, in 2015, I applied for a job at the Tor foundation, um, which was the, if you're not familiar with Tor, it's the software that runs the deep web or the dark web. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an anonymous, anonymity software that uh, basically permits you to appear like you're coming somewhere from somewhere else on the internet, but also lets you host hidden websites on the internet. Um, And it's used by dissidents to evade firewalls in authoritarian regimes, but it's also used by hackers worldwide. And I thought that this was a very interesting project, and I was very excited about the interview process and late into the interview process i noticed something wrong with my network i noticed my network was slowing down i thought that was kind of strange so i ran nmap uh, which is a network mapping protocol Mm -hmm. and i found that ssh was running on my printer which it was not before Um, ssh is a secure shell for remote controlling a device um and I was like, oh, that's strange that somebody hacked my printer. Um, and over the course of the next few days, I found that all of my systems had been hacked. And I started to wipe the systems and reinstall and do everything that a good sysadmin would do, do all my patches. And what I found was that uh, the patching was not happening fast enough. I was getting exploited faster than I could patch my systems. And it dawned on me that this is, this was an automated uh, attack. It was a scripted attack, that, mm-hmm. that there wasn't a person behind this. There There is a machine that was actually running exploits faster than I could patch the exploits. And um, that experience really opened up this sense of being outpaced by machinery um it's it's, it's a age-old human story i mean we can go back to john henry and the steam engine um with humans being outpaced by our creations um but i really got this sense that things on the digital realm can move faster in adversarial way than, uh humans can react. And that was really what opened my eyes towards the weaponization of these technologies um, and the, the capability for us to make autonomous systems that react much faster than humans can react. And for AI and cybersecurity, that poses a significant problem, but also for robotic weaponry. Um, and we're entering an age where uh, there are people who are talking about creating an autonomous weapons ban, but the technology for creating autonomous weaponry is already out there in open source. And so so it's already possible for nation states and even lone actors to create autonomous weapons. Um, so, so really... Uh, I got thinking about this in earnest in 2015, but I've been uh, really following the the autonomous weapons ban. And if you want to consider how bad this could get, uh, there is a great video done by the Future of Life Institute uh, that was about uh, swarming UAVs and how bad uh, our life could get if anybody ever developed small, uavs that were swarming because we have no countermeasures against them i want to so, go back to uh, yeah
0: something you said because i think it's actually really interesting and i've never heard anyone mention it before you said in the early days of the internet um when you were a user things seemed very um cordial or very community like is that is that true yeah yeah okay I, i'd say that i'm curious if that has something to do with the number of people right because when i lived in Pennsylvania uh going to college in Pennsylvania. I lived in the countryside. My wife and I lived in the countryside and we had like six neighbors. And you didn't tailgate people. You weren't rude. You waved at everyone as you went by. There was a sense of community. But when I moved to Rochester, New York, there's a million people. I tailgate. I don't care what people think. I don't wave to anyone. I don't even I couldn't even like what am I gonna do? Wave to you know Forty-seven thousand people I see on my commute. I can't. So, do you think that that naturally happens as systems get more users?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I I feel th- there have been studies on uh, how many relationships people can keep track of, right? And and the the human mind seems to be adapted towards a couple hundred relationships. Um, And if you think about early societies like primitive hunter gatherer societies, like that's about the max that you're going to get in in a clan or a village or like a a collective living arrangement. Like you you don't you don't get the mega cities until agriculture comes around and um, you start to see like the cities of Mesopotamia go up and um basically i feel like on this digital space we are wired towards trying to find smaller communities in the sea of large communities and that's one of the things where algorithms are actually uh creating problems for us because it's very easy for algorithms to say, oh, you're interested in cat videos. Well, let me show you cat videos. I can show you lots of cat videos. I can get you tied into a cat video community. Um, Or you're interested in potentially the concept that the earth is flat. Well, let me introduce you to the community of people who believe that the earth is flat. And so you get these communities building up Um, that previously might be held down. And and the the thing which is really interesting about the internet is that it's a global phenomenon. So communities that previously didn't have a lot of social reinforcement um, now have the capability to find the 150 other friends who can provide that social reinforcement? So you feel like everybody believes what you believe, even if you're still globally a minority in your opinion.
0: Right, and those algorithms that tend to group people based on ideology or—I or, yeah. think this is a common term called sentiment analysis in deep learning. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, can you explain that? How that sort of works?
1: Well, yeah. well c- sentiment sentiment analysis is a natural language processing technique where you are trying to figure out what the, the meaning of a string of words is or mm-hmm. um, the sentiment of a string of words. So um, th- there are different techniques for doing sentiment analysis, but one of them is using a technique called word to vec um, which represents the words as vectors. And you can get very interesting—you uh, can get interesting combinations of vectors. So, um, if you take the vector for king, and you do a vector addition with the vector for woman, you get the vector for queen. Right. Um, and and so so these these. Uh, Techniques allow us to break down uh, what human intention is in the speaking and be able to translate it into something that could be parsed by a machine. But I have to say that that type of analysis is still very rough. It doesn't have the nuance that a human does in its capability to analyze what people are talking about because humans have context yeah things like sarcasm right exactly so ai algorithms the the reason why the the ai filters are really bad at detecting your sarcasm or uh things that might be a joke is because they don't have the contextual understanding of who you are what your intentions are Um, The type of stuff that all of your friends totally understand. Um, And I I think that the next wave of AI is going to be about building that contextual understanding.
0: How do you do that? How do you? uh, That seems like a really tough hurdle. That seems like the type of hurdle that will really curtail the growth of these types of algorithms.
1: Well, I, I don't think it would curtail them. I, I think it's actually the next wave towards making them more acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, right now we have a problem with algorithms in that they're very narrow in their understanding. Right. So uh, if I take a speed limit sign for 35 miles an hour and I add a little tape to it, I can confuse a Tesla into thinking that it's in in an an 85-mile-an-hour speed zone. And the Tesla will start going 85 miles an hour. Now, any human would have the contextual understanding to understand that that's just a piece of tape on a sign. And the sign's intention of 35 miles an hour needs to remain because mm. it might be dangerous to be going 85 in that zone. Um, but the the robot doesn't have that. The robot just has – it's probably about 60% 85 miles an hour and 40% 35. I'm going to go with 85. Yeah. I see. Um, so, so I think as we build systems with context, the robot will be able to explain – Different features. So, I mean, ideally, like instead of saying that's eighty-seven percent chance of duck in an image recognition network, you could say that's an eighty-seven percent chance of duck because it has a seventy-five percent chance of having a bill, eighty uh, percent chance of having wings, and forty uh, percent chance of having webbed feet. So, those features combined create a duck and I think it's a duck because I saw all of those features in the image
0: mm-hmm. part of it and, to,
1: oh, sorry I don't want to know oh, sorry, sorry and, and I'm uh, I just wanted to say that people are working on that people are mm-hmm. working on developing uh, image recognition and AI systems that have greater contextual understanding
0: yeah does that that's a problem of training right because human, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but humans, we see a lot of examples. I mean, think about a speed limit sign, right? We see examples that are, you know, if you live in Pennsylvania, you see examples with bullet holes in them. You see examples, uh, you know, that they're like hit by a truck. They got mud on them, snow on them, uh, tape on them. So you like sort of catalog a lot of speed limit signs throughout your life. You probably see I don't know, hundreds every week. If you're an adult who drives, commutes to work, you probably see hundreds a week. You have to then, you know, train a computer to do that. And the way in which I imagine you do that, and my machine learning knowledge is so, so small compared to yours. I know some and I work with some, but I, I don't do a lot. I imagine, though, you really have to create a data set that is incredibly um sort of verbose, covering every single range of speed limit sign you could ever see.
1: And And, that becomes tough. And the danger is in doing that, that let's say you have a very large labeled data set. Um, You might only be able to pick out a handful of examples of speed limit signs that, say, have bullet holes in them. Right. Okay. In that data set. Right. And so the machine learning algorithm doesn't really learn around the bullet hole example mm-hmm. um, because it really needs large amounts of data to do learning. And what humans do really well is we learn from sparse examples. Right. Um, so we learn from very limited uh, presentations of uh, an example that that is what the reality of the example is and so um i think we're going to have to figure out how to do learning from sparse examples in machine learning yeah um and and i don't think that our current approaches with uh deep neural nets are going to be sufficient for learning from sparse examples. I I think we're going to have to have some blended approaches to be able to do that.
0: Yeah, and that's a big concern of yours, right? Because you talk about the example of compass, which to my understanding is it was likely trained how to think. You have to train a computer how to think. It was likely trained how to think based on a very biased example of the world. Can you speak a little bit about what Compass is and why it's such a problem in the world of algorithmic development?
1: Yeah, so Compass is a criminal justice uh, tool that is used for recidivism scoring. So it's scoring the chance of whether a person is going to commit a crime again after they've been released. So it's, it's really a risk tool. And um, it takes into account a range of factors from geography to race to age. And it's been shown to be biased on a range of factors from geography to age to race. Um, And the reason why Compass for me is, is a dangerous example is that if you were in an HR position, and you were working for the criminal justice system, and you had to hire somebody to make decisions about whether somebody is going to commit a crime again, would you hire any random person off the street who could just give you a gut feeling and say, I think that this is 87% the case and not be able to explain it? You never do that. Mm You never hire somebody who could just be like, my gut says that this person's going to commit a crime again. Yeah. Like you'd always want the capability for an explanation. And for me, the most dangerous thing about systems like Compass is people trust them to give an accurate opinion before they've been vetted. Um, because there's an economic incentive for people to sell these things and there's, there's, uh, real use case incentive for people to buy them because like generally these systems reduce cognitive load. They, they take the burden off people in making these decisions. Um, but, but ultimately if we don't treat that with a grain of salt, if we don't keep our own uh, human decision-making in the loop I think we're going to find that the, the world that these algorithms create is not the kind of world we live in because these algorithms are really good at spawning generalized trends, but are very bad at dealing with outliers. Right. And I think, and so, yeah, yeah, go on.
0: I think that any uh, metric that takes in a, a range of values, a range of, of classifications, a range of attributes, and returns to you a single value to describe a whole human, I think that's troublesome. I mean, you see it in standardized tests, too, right? Um, yeah. You, you, you take into account thousands of factors, um, you take into account where you grew up, you take into account how much funding your school got, you take into account everything, and then you return 910. And that can in many ways determine like 10 years worth of the trajectory of your life. I think that's always going to be problematic.
1: And and what we're seeing now is we're seeing more of this algorithmic deployment determining major life decisions, mm. determining things like whether you get a loan for your house right. or whether you get a job. I mean, HR screening right now happens largely on the resume level, algorithmically. And if you don't fit the check boxes, so let's say you didn't like, say you're going for a coding job and you happen to be like an excellent coder who never went to school. Right. Like nowadays, you're going to get weeded out before you even get to the interview stage. Mm-hmm. And if you look at some of the greatest innovations in some companies across, the, the nation. Um, like During during the development of the Macintosh, they pulled in this guy who was working in the Apple IIe repair department who had only had an associate's degree in electronics from uh, the uh, Santa Clara Community College. Um, he ended up being one of the core people in innovating to make sure that the Mac could actually get out At the Mm -hmm. time Um, and he was able to do that because he didn't have the rigid ways of thinking that had been ingrained in all the electrical engineering degrees Um, and he was just approaching it from a more creative way because he had had an alternate path and I feel like um, if we if we weed out these people who have had alternate paths Um, And we don't get diversity in the workforce. It's going to really stifle creativity and it's going to stifle the capability for companies to adapt to the changing world. And I think the most important characteristic going forward in the 20th century for any company is going to be the capability to adapt.
0: Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I I just think they use it because it's efficient, right? Yeah, exactly. A lot of these things are employed. So how Uh, do we combat that? I, I think
1: the, the way you combat that is you actually force people to not reduce their cognitive load. Mm-hmm. You force people to say, okay, I'm going to spot check the decisions that are being made by the AI. So maybe in the case of HR, uh, you go deep into that resume pool and you pick out a random, so, uh, random selection of resumes, and you have the humans review those resumes and say whether they'd give that person a chance. And this this sort of spot checking of AI really needs to be incorporated at every level of a company, um, and I feel like is going to provide a lot of human jobs mm-hmm. going forward because um, right now the AI systems that we have are just very narrow. Um, and and really, um, if we can get more of the explainable AI in place, which is currently happening in research and not really happening in corporate deployment, um, if we can get more of that in place in corporate depo- deployment and get more uh, human interaction with the AI system and re- constant retraining of the AI systems, um, I, I think you're going to see a, a better partnership between... Humans and artificial intelligence systems.
0: Why do you think humans are so quick to accept um, a number generated by a computer with no knowledge of what's happening under the hood? Not why.
1: Well, I, I, mean, I mean, computer used to be a human job, right? Like, like that used to be a job title. I'm, I'm a computer, mm-hmm. and um, if you look at the capabilities intellectually of the people who were computers in say the 1940s and like you, I I, just, even from my personal experience, like I'm, I was always pretty good at math. My math skills are nowhere near in my head. What a computer from the 1940s could do uh, a human computer Mm -hmm. uh, could do. And that's because I've grown up Deferring to my calculator, yeah. Deferring to my my computer. Deferring to the Excel spreadsheet. Like, okay, yeah, that's that's gonna be the correct number. Mm-hmm. And I just trust it. Yeah. And I think that right now with with calculators, they're accurate enough that I can just trust it. Right. And and that it's okay for me to just trust it. But with right. with like, AI decision-making, I mean, this stuff is still just out of research. I mean, comparatively. I mean, it's, it's only been a good decade of AI being deployed in the field. Um, so so I think we should treat it with a grain of salt.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not being treated with a grain of salt, right? No, it's and, not. <laughs> uh, you know, this is one of the more interesting things of this election cycle. Is you had the emergence of Andrew Yang who was coming along and um, sirening the alarm, if you will, and saying, listen, we have, we're, we're having a, a continued reliance on technology. It's only going to get worse. We're only going to have more reliance on technology. We need to get ahead of the curve. We need to step in the way. We need to figure out a new way to structure our economy and, and uh, deal with our people so that they're not left on the streets once this uh, has happened. And, you know, many people already have, I think, I don't know what the numbers. Do you know how many jobs are lost every year in the U.S. to automation?
1: Well, I, I can't tell you how many jobs are lost every year, but I can give you a few uh, statistics from specific sectors. Okay. Um, so between 2000 and 2010 in manufacturing, uh, we deployed a lot of automation. Um, and we lost uh, 4.8 million manufacturing jobs Mm -hmm. um, over that period of time. And that represented almost one third of the U.S. manufacturing workforce lost during that period of time. Um, And if you look at the production during that period of time, it's really incredible because we end up producing just about the same amount of stuff. And I can send you some graphs uh, from the Fed that show this.
0: Yes, yeah, sure. We can um, uh,
1: display them. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll send you some graphs from the Fed and BLS that that show this trend. But basically, um, what that points to and what people really want to investigate is, is why is that efficiency uh, improving and how come we're getting more output per person? Mm-hmm. Um, and Ball State University did a study on this and showed that 80% of that gain was not due to, say, offshoring or other factors, but was due to automation. Um, And this problem is only going to get worse because what we've done between 2010 and now is we've created technologies for decision-making and perception that let us take robots out of the temples of precision that are our factories where things come down the line with millimeter precision, millisecond mm-hmm. accuracy, and but us put the robots into the general world. Um, and that is really terrifying because it means that not just are the truckers going to be affected, and there are 4 million truckers in the U.S. There are 8 million support service workers for truckers in the U.S. Like um, not only are all those jobs going to be affected, but the people who are striking for fifteen dollars an hour to flip burgers—they're mm-hmm. going to have to compete against Flippy, the burger flipping robot, right. and like the people who are doing, uh, like back of kitchen, like sous chefing—they're going to compete with a robot. And like we're going to see this this move towards putting perception, decision making in every single robotic technology, um, for every single application, the same way that when electricity came about, we saw electricity being put into every domestic appliance. Um, And that is estimated to displace by McKinsey uh, 400 million workers worldwide by 2030. So 10 years, 400 million workers um now the question is what are the new jobs that are going to get created right um and i think there are going to be a lot of new jobs that are created but what yang points to is that for the people who've been doing the old jobs there's a really good chance of them getting left behind yes and and what we need to do is we need to strengthen social safety nets to make sure that those people don't get fully left behind, because what happens if you leave those people fully behind is you lose a lot of the fabric of the economy. Like you, you lose, uh, so I I used to work in Haiti and Haiti has a huge divide between rich and poor. And what, happens when you have a huge divide between rich and poor and you have a totally monopolistic economy is that basic structures like um, social contract, like the the capability for people to have safety just walking down the streets, Mm -hmm. all of that starts to disintegrate. And so the question is, do we want to create a world where we have the haves and have nots and then the haves just retreat to their gated communities and hide away or do we want to create a world where we can actually help the people who are left behind in this transition and we can use the the technology to make their lives better um by creating cheaper and cheaper goods and by uh giving stuff away for free like uh, universal basic income right um And universal basic income is one of Yang's big uh, platforms, Um, but it's an old platform. It's it's something that almost got voted into existence in the U.S. in the 1970s. Um, And it's something that ultimately is just recognizing that if you have a consumer society, people being consumers and executing choice as to what they consume is a really valuable part of that society and and you could really just focus on trying to reward the consumer for being a consumer yeah and taking part in this the societal uh choices of what gets supported and what doesn't
0: yeah i mean Uh, this is a better time than ever for that because you literally see it happening with the stimulus bill right
1: i i mean so the, the stimulus bill in my mind has not gone far enough. Um, mm-hmm. In if you look at the Canadian stimulus, uh, they're doing multiple months of stimulus, right. and like for me, the one-time check doesn't really deal with how people deal with money. Right. Um, so so people's people's relationship with money is that it comes in, it goes out. There's a flow to it. And regulating that flow is more important than uh, making sure they've got a huge amount of money in, in the beginning. So, so I, 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 feel, I feel like uh, if, if we were to have a universal basic income, it would help people adapt to technology, but it also stimulate the economy because it would give a backstop to people who are entrepreneurial To be able to go and pursue their entrepreneurial endeavors, um, which I think could really stimulate a great deal of economic growth. Yeah.
0: The argument, of course, is always that you will have people who just sit, right? And I grew up in Pennsylvania, and that's the disability belt, baby. There's a lot of people just sitting. Um, It's unfortunate, but it happens.
1: and, And I feel like the... The question is, I mean, so, so let me reframe that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go to Google or you go to Facebook, there are people who are being paid by Google and Facebook right now to just sit. Right. There are people who are. Excellent coders who have great capabilities. Mm -hmm. Like I know a guy who was in Google for robotics and he got paid a pretty high salary to sit around and work on like some small app because they didn't know where to place him in the company. Right. They recognized that he had talent, but they didn't know how to use that talent just yet. So they got so he got paid to just sit there for a little while. And they, they eventually deployed him onto Waymo. Um, and he became uh, a really good roboticist for Waymo. Um, and I feel like, like there's nothing wrong with paying people to sit around and figure out what they need to do in life as long as you're trying to help them figure that out. Yeah. We don't begrudge somebody who is independently wealthy living off of interest from investments Mm -hmm. uh, for like sitting around and partying all the time. Um, So I don't think that we should begrudge people who are on universal basic income for sitting around and figuring it out. Um, But I I do think that what that will enable is that it will enable that superstar who's struggling to be able to break out of their mode of struggling for survival and into actually producing something that produces more economic gain.
0: Yeah. So I agree with you. Uh, yeah. I was a gang 2020 guy and then, you know, that happened. Um, yeah. Somehow Joe Biden is the front. Row. I don't, I've never saw the Joe Biden sticker. I've never saw a Joe Biden hat. I've never saw a Joe Biden shirt. I, n- never. I saw more Yang. Tw- I saw a guy who, uh, had a cardboard cutout of Andrew Yang just walking around with him. I saw <laughs> Andrew Yang bumper stickers, I saw it all. I've not seen a single Joe Biden piece of apparel ever. Like at least with oh. Donald Trump, I know who's voting for the guy. I see the MagAts, I see, you know, I see it all. Props to them. They're they're flaunting it off. Who's voting for Joe Biden? I don't understand it. Sorry. Just yeah. so this <laughs> side, side campaign question. Yeah. yeah. Um. um But I want I want to switch back to something because okay you have a very interesting solution to a lot of the problems that we see in systems like Compass. The solution that you present, and I'm sure that the solution is actually multifaceted and you have many, many ways to solve this problem, a checklist of ideas. Um, But one of the ways you cite is making code open source. So the code that is uh, governed by Compass, people should be able to look at it and understand how it works. Can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, and I think that that's only a partial solution. Right. Because you need to actually have the data sets open source too, if you're going to follow that solution. Right. And that does present a danger to companies because if you have open data sets and open algorithms, then anybody can replicate what they're doing.
0: Yeah, Um, and that's that's a very interesting thing to me, how we can fix that. And so I feel like the the
1: fix for that is to be able to do uh, what I was saying before in trying to make the algorithms incorporate some explainability.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So, so I feel like if we can start to incorporate more explainability into the algorithms, we can have people whose job it is to interrogate the algorithms and to check the algorithms. And so, so I've, if, if there were a black box algorithm that I couldn't inspect the code for um, and I couldn't expect the data set for, or maybe I could inspect the code, but I couldn't inspect the data set so I'd know that there's no uh, smoke and mirrors there, Right. Um, I would be happy as long as it had explainability built in and I could interrogate the algorithm as to why it made its decisions. If I could inspect the code and they could explain its decisions, I'd be happy not to see the data set.
0: Right. Explainability is interesting because it can also lead to interesting questions. So, like, you could imagine the the code spits out an explanation. It says, here is why I made the decision I made. And to some people, that explainability might be good. Whatever the explainability is, whatever the problem is. You know, um, so in the example of the wolves dogs case that you mentioned, can you sp- can you speak to the case quick? And then I'll, I'll...
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll speak can to you... that case real yeah. quick. So so there was a dog wolf detection algorithm uh, that some researchers had written that uh, was determining between huskies and wolves and pictures. And it was pretty accurate. So they took one of the examples where it got it wrong and they started. Uh, to rewrite the algorithm, to highlight the points in the picture that it was focusing on when it made its decisions. And it turned out that what it was focusing on was the snow in the background of the picture. And they realized that they had bias in the data set, where in the pictures of wolves, the wolves were primarily in snow. Mm -hmm. And what they had ultimately written was not a dog-wolf detector, but was a snow detector and they didn't realize they had made a snow detector um because they hadn't realized this bias in the data set
0: yeah that's it's a super interesting example and it, it raises a very important question that i have which is who is the decider of what is and isn't bias right because you could say that the algorithm was biased or it was fed biased data it was only given data where wolves are in snow right um And I'm not a wildlife biologist, but what if someone came along and said, but wait, 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 wolves do primarily live in places with snow, you know? And they said, maybe that's not as big of a bias as you would think it would be because wolves do primarily, this is a bad example, of course, because huskies live in snow too. Um, But the point is that what one person interprets as bias isn't universally accepted as bias. Right.
1: Yeah, ex- exactly. And you need bias yes. for for the algorithm, like if if you are going to do back propagation, you need bias. and you need bias to set the line that the the curve that is being used to determine what your clustering is of mm-hmm. uh, different data points. So so you need bias in the algorithm, but the question is, whether people understand what the biases Mm -hmm. are. So I'll give another example, um, which might uh, highlight this a little bit better. Um, So Rich Caruana from Microsoft Research did a pneumonia admissions algorithm. And uh, he was really focused on uh, trying to figure out uh, who should be admitted and who should be sent home when they have pneumonia. And the algorithm was doing really well, is again really accurate for historical data about who recovered at home and who recovered in the hospital, except it was sending everybody from the ICU home. Or, sorry, it was sending, I, I totally just revealed the punchline there. Um, it was sending everybody who had asthma home. Hmm. And he was like, this is very strange. Why is it sending everybody with asthma home? So he went to the doctors and the doctor said, you know, asthma is a risk factor for complications. So people with asthma go to the ICU. Ah. And he went through his data and he didn't have complete ICU data.
0: I see. So what you, so, what you saw in the data is that people with asthma left.
1: What, what he saw on the data was people with asthma left and they recovered. Right. Okay. So, so it was a miraculous recovery of everybody with asthma. So, you should automatically send them home. But he realized that if he had missed the asthma case, what other cases could he be missing? Right. So, he actually scrapped the machine learning approach and he used a different statistical approach called the general additive model, where he represented all of the assumptions that were being made as two dimensional human readable graphs. And he ran all those graphs by experts to verify that they made sense, like age versus risk, asthma versus risk, cancer versus risk. Mm-hmm. And basically, um, he created a model that could be interpreted by people for its biases and for what it was deciding on, what what features it was focused on. Um, and I, I feel like that that is where we need to to incorporate humans is is into assessing the biases that these data sets have, and really crafting the biases so they fit with expert opinion. Um. So so I mean, th- this is going to be something that's going to be a technical domain for people who are statisticians who have expert. Op- knowledge in specific domains. And like in medicine, it's very clear how this could be applied. Um, but in other industries, it may be a little bit less clear because the, the history of statistical analysis may not be as robust. Um, but I think that that is where the future is going to go.
0: Yeah. I'm curious if you're going to see a, uh, not a peer review process that already exists in, in many ways. Um, what is it like a clinical trial process? I'm curious if you'll start to see this go the way of almost the pharmaceutical industry, although hopefully it's not as sinister. Um, But I I wonder if you'll have that, where you have, okay, I have this uh, algorithm, this machine learning algorithm. It was designed behind closed doors. We're not going to release the source code, but we are going to make it it output some human readable statistics so that you can know what we value in a data set. And then also, we're going to test it. On a lot of mock data sets and make sure or, or not even mock data sets, d- deploy it into the world, assuming it's not going to, you know, put people wrongfully in prison. It's it's um, obviously going to infect some people. But it's interesting. It's like uh, clinical trials affect some people. Some people yeah. take clinical, clinical trials and they get negatively affected. So I'm curious if you'll see a company saying we have to, mandated by government – do a clinical test of the code.
1: I am. I mean, I, I, th- I think that you are going to see people uh, testing these systems in more robust ways, and I think you are going to see government mandates. Like I, I am a big proponent of the development of uh, self-driving car licensing tests in simulation. Um, and what does that mean? So, so basically, uh, evaluating and di- giving driver's licenses to self driving vehicles, mm. uh, but doing it in simulation before they ever get on the road and running simulations of, uh, the vehicles in standard traffic scenarios and recorded traffic scenarios, um, to be able to, uh, see how the vehicle behaves in a range of scenarios and actually force it into like near crash situations and a few other situations um but yeah i mean i I think that 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 type of testing is something that's not on the government's radar like i was i was talking to uh rhode island dot about that type of testing and they're like great. Uh, once we get a bunch of data scientists, we'll, we'll start working on that. Um, yeah. But um, I think that ultimately that's going to be where the future heads, um, is that we're going to have testing and certification. Because again, we're still in the early days of this. Uh, we still don't have the the history and robustness of a lot of other industrial technologies. Yeah. So certifications are coming And testing is coming. And there's going to be bodies, just like uh, UL certifies things that are electrical. There's going to be bodies that certify things that are artificially intelligent.
0: Yeah, I'm curious to see how this emerges. Because governments have proven to me that they are technologically inept. And it's not necessarily their fault. I don't blame them for not sitting down and learning how to write code. Um, I don't think that a congressman should even be doing that they should probably be spending time differently um but they have shown an. i mean i don't know i assume you saw the the interviews of mark zuckerberg in front of uh i, I believe yeah yeah no,
1: this. I, I saw those
0: yeah yeah so it just kind of makes you realize that a lot of people in governance don't understand technology the power of technology etc so they need to be reaching out to people like you and the initiatives that you're a part of are they doing that? Is anyone saying, hey, Peter, uh, can you break this down for me? Do we need to legislate this? Are self-driving so, cars safe? Stuff so like so
1: I, I think there are people in government who are working on things and I think it's just a matter of government moving much slower yes. than we're used to. But I mean if you look at if you look at things like radio communication. And the FCC, like radio, used to be the complete wild west, mm-hmm. and it got regulated slowly over time. And now it's a very controlled environment, and you can't make something that's going to produce radio interference um, as a product. Mm-hmm. Um, the FAA is doing a similar thing; they're they're actually regulating. I'm not a big fan of the current regulation on drones that they're proposing but um, they're starting to regulate the UAV industry um, because they've got a highly regulated airspace mm-hmm. and UAVs are this, this uh, wild card that's been introduced to the airspace um, so I, I think you do see government catching up but there is room for private private standards development and private licensure. Like, I mean, um a lot of the internet is based off of nonprofit corporations and like initial standards that were set up. Like the W three C consortium was based out of MIT. Um so like I, I feel like Uh, there's a lot of opportunity for private groups to come in and say, like, just like UL, UL Underwriters Laboratory, they're not a government agency. Like, they're they're a private group, but they got all the insurers to say, okay, unless something's UL certified, we're not going to insure it. So I so I, I feel like there's a lot of room for private groups to actually come in and fill some of this void while governments still slowly trying to adapt
0: yeah i suppose my fear is that the automation industry the ai industry the machine learning industry has become probably by now a trillion dollar business in the way it affects the global economy maybe one of the premier businesses in the entire world if you could actually figure out the amount of production that automation is responsible for. I assume people have done these analyses. I haven't seen them, but I assume they've been done, and I assume it's very high, like comparable to most of the hottest commodities in the world. So I fear that government isn't going to be able to regulate um, at the level that maybe you or I would hope they could.
1: I, I mean, I, I'm gonna push back on that okay. because because I, I feel like there are plenty of industries where once government has decided that it's going to do regulation for good or bad. And Mm -hmm. when we say government, we're, we're often referring to something domestic in the U S being U S citizens. But I I think there's a lot of room for international regulation Mm -hmm. as well. And there's a lot of rooms for standards bodies. Like I was saying to step in, like I know ISO is working on standards for artificial intelligence right now. Um, and I, I feel like that's something that um, that's something that will be put in place. I think in the next ten years, you're going to really see a change in standardization and things that were permitted on a corporate level, like you just downloading some open source code and and incorporating it into your corporate workflow. Um, that's not going to be possible anymore.
0: You see, yeah, I guess I just um, don't trust government to do a good job. That's a yeah.
1: common theme amongst. It's, my it's, it's, it's it's not an unexpected theme.
0: Yeah, so I want to read you some statistics, and I and I want to get your thoughts on them. Okay. Okay. So I, I try to do this with everyone I have on the show. I try to grab something relevant to them, and I just want to know what you think about these your first thoughts so more than 70 percent of people would be willing to augment their bodies and brains in order to improve their employment prospects this is a statistic by price waterhouse cooper scary yeah where do you see that going do you think that will be a reality in the future where employers are like hey um we need you to put a chip in your arm or wear it. even like something like wear a watch like an apple watch to make sure that you're keeping up with the efficiency that we want you to in fact um this already happened so i have a, a brother um who had worked in a it wasn't amazon it was a where it was a distribution center and it wasn't amazon but it was another big uh distribu it might have been walmart and they had to carry like a little uh ipad type thing with them And maintain a level of efficiency or their job would be in in trouble. So they would be literally um, sort of like judged by how many pallets worth of goods they unloaded per day. And you had to do like 1.2 per hour or you're in jeopardy. You're going to get a write-up or something. So do you think that will become more prevalent amongst the more sinister of companies or do you already? I, I,
1: I mean, I, I think it is the, the current reality for mm-hmm. a lot of people. And I think the danger in that, um, or not the danger in that, but the, the reality in that for companies is that humans are not good robots. Like we don't do repetitive tasks at high performance levels um very well. And the algorithms the problem with the algorithms is there's no appeasing them. Mm-hmm. Like when you have AI as your boss, you can't make your boss happy. Your right. boss is just gonna look at what you're doing for performance and then try to eke out a little bit more performance and eke out a little bit more performance until it becomes f- functionally Impossible for the human to perform at that level um and i feel like like ultimately companies are going to realize that that this is not something that's good for the workers because the workers are gonna stand up and you're seeing this with the striking workers at amazon um where the conditions of the workplace are getting to the point where the workers are saying, hey, you know, you think you can do this all with robots? Well, let's see. And they're, they're striking and taking the humans out of the equation. I, I think that we, we are really going backwards in some sense to the age of the last oligarchs um, mm-hmm. and like the late 1800s. Um, When we had poor factory conditions, um, we're we're really heading back towards those days. And I I think that it's going to take workers standing up for their rights to be able to actually prevent that and to make sure that there are good working conditions in factories going forward.
0: I see. So another one. Okay. I'm going to read you another one. The automation potential for jobs that require less than a bachelor's degree is 55%. Occupational groups like food preparation and serving face a disruption of up to 80% over the course of I think this was the next 10 years and this is Brookings Institution. I feel
1: like that's not unreasonable. Yeah, especially given been... it seems insane. Well, it's it seems it seems insane.
0: Mhm.
1: But given both the state of automation and what is about to happen in teleoperation, um, I could see those jobs not necessarily being fully automated out of existence, but being offshored. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there are technologies uh, being developed for virtual reality control of robots that are going to permit very high robot functioning. Being operated by a human in virtual reality, and um, that that is going to let you move the geographic scope of labor. So instead of having to fill your local factory's needs with workers from the regional area, you're going to be able to fill your local factory or your back of kitchen or whatever warehouse or whatever industry you're in um you're gonna be able to fill your needs with a robot that's being teleoperated by somebody who's currently making ten dollars a day in guatemala or yeah. mexico
0: i watched a talk you gave and you showed a video of this robot cleaning up a room right and it was yep. being telecommuted by someone else
1: yeah yeah so so that that robot was um an older robot is an early example of this it was done in 2007 and it was done with a, a da Vinci surgical gantry system. So it, it recorded people's movements mechanically, but we can do this in VR now. And there's actually a $10 million avatar Prize mm-hmm. to develop this technology. And I can tell you, like looking at the teams that are in that um, there are going to be some commercial developments very soon like next three four years
0: so what's going to happen is you you literally have a a robot that is being controlled by someone in virtual reality in a different place in the world and it's doing some task
1: yeah yeah and 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 that's and that's going that's going to actually move the the needle on getting robots into the world because right now the thing that holds robots back is they can't make decisions about what to do Mm -hmm. they can't make decisions about where to go next move around who to talk to what to pick up but physically like you look at the atlas robot atlas is a very physically capable robot like all of its its movements and its actuators and like all the joints on it it's it's a great robot but it doesn't know how to use its body and if you have people teleoperating that robot, then the robot suddenly knows what to do and that's gonna really reduce the barrier to robots being out in the world.
0: Yeah, how do you see this uh, changing the actual emergence of robots that can do stuff on their own? Because the way I'm thinking is this is going to give people who want to design robots to operate in different new elaborate environments. It's going to give them an incredible training set about how humans navigate a room they've never been in before.
1: Exactly. And and there's research working on translating that training set of VR teleoperation into autonomy. Um like there there are people who are are currently doing that in research. Um but the the robots being controlled by people is going to create the biggest data set. That the world is seeing for robot autonomy. Um, and it's, I feel like it's going to be a lot like I, there, there are these pictures um, that I have of New York City Easter Day Parade in 1901 and 1913. In 1901, it's a sea of horse drawn carriages and one motor car. And then by 1913, it's all Model T Fords. Mm-hmm and one horse drawn carriage. I feel like we're on the cusp of the same sort of thing with robots. Like I think 15 years from now you will see robots everywhere.
0: So and, what what are the first jobs that you think are going to go in terms of this telecommuting? This is going to be food preparation. I'm thinking the one I'm thinking of that I think is like really fits into the model of the video you showed would be like housekeeping at a hotel.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so so Again, it's going to be a range of industries. Um, So food prep, housekeeping, warehousing, um, frontline, like nursing. Like I I could see a situation like COVID 19 where you have to do basic tasks like take a patient's temperature or Mm -hmm. something. Like keeping the nurses out of that task um, is going to be a big, a big, uh, future use of this. And then um, I'm thinking that the jobs that are going to stick around for people are the ones where people are going to want personal touch. Right. So things like uh, home care for the elderly, mm-hmm. like things like um, I know, barbers, hairstylists, mm-hmm. like that's not going to go away. Bartenders, I don't think are going to get replaced by the digital bartender at all but the cheapest bars they're just trying to like mass mass market to people like i i think that there can still be a lot of jobs around and there are gonna be new classes of jobs like in in the 1950s our lifestyles didn't uh create barista as like a category for uh a job. And somebody came up with a lifestyle change. It was like, everybody wants espresso. And now barista is a very common job in the U.S. I think that there's going to be a lot of stuff uh, in terms of personalization uh, where humans being creative and developing personalized goods and services are going to create new jobs. Um, So um, you can think of like the maker movement, but on a more industrial scale.
0: So if, if you had to predict. Do you think we will see. The emergence of telecommuting. Happen in five years. Ten years.
1: I'm I'm thinking ten to fifteen. For teleoperation robots. I
0: see. I said telecommuting sorry. That's the wrong yeah. one. Um, yeah. But so f- ten to fifteen years. And you're going to see a lot of these. It's, it's interesting to me that. You already see. I, I feel like you see an acceleration. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, in terms of front end user automation. So things like when you go to McDonald's, you don't order at a person anymore. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. things like that. And
1: and you're seeing you're seeing that as a cost cutting measure, uh, right. for sure. And you're seeing that in retail as well with the self-checkout and the grab and go. I mean, the Amazon Go store is a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like um, ultimately the the use of robots in those situations or humanoid robots, androids in that that situation, is still ten to fifteen years off.
0: Okay. Now I asked you this question earlier, but I'm going to come back to it. I asked you the question of: Is your fear mostly based in like human use of these sorts of technologies? Do you ever have the other spectrum of fear so i i had a james barrett on the show who was the author of i have his book sitting around here somewhere but it's our final invention it's actually cited as elon musk as a a must read um book and it's a good book but it touts that the development of agi may be um the the last thing we'll ever need to invent because it will do the it will essentially not take over in a sinister way, although there are some themes like that. Um, but do you foresee the emergence of AGI being inherently dangerous to humans on its own right? Not because humans are using it wrong, but because itself is is problematic.
1: It depends on what type of AGI we develop. Okay? so oh, And
0: for people, uh, when I say AGI, can you explain...
1: Yeah, yeah, so so AGI stands for artificial general intelligence, and right now, artificial general intelligence is science fiction. So mm-hmm. I want to—it's future postulation about what what might happen. Um, but basically, um, the concept is that human intelligence is not the stopping point. And you could have artificial superintelligence uh, develop where um, th- as the intelligence be- progresses and is able to program itself better and better and, say, replace AI researchers with artificial general intelligent AI researchers, uh, because computers have this capability to outpace us, because it's just a matter of how many cycles we put at it, um, ultimately it will develop an intelligence that's far beyond humans. And perhaps the goals of that intelligence will diverge from the goals of human intelligence. And in that divergence, we could become like ants are to people. Um, but I want to go back Mm -hmm. and I want to consider this question of explainability because I think explainability is the key to developing safe general intelligence. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think that if we develop a general intelligence that is based entirely on unexplainable techniques that is linguistically different than us, then it would be like creating dolphins. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like dolphins, dolphins are obviously intelligent, but we have no idea how to communicate with dolphins. Right. Okay. So imagine super intelligent dolphin androids. <laughs> um, so, so like the, the, super intelligent androids that we can't communicate with, that uh-huh. we can't uh, be able to express ourselves to that. We can't express our norms to, like that's a terrifying situation to me because that's the situation where we've literally created an alien race that we don't know what they're going to do. And they're smarter than us. Right. Um, but the situation that makes me a little bit more hopeful is the concept that we create a AGI that has human linguistic capabilities and we build it around human linguistic capabilities and we build it around human norms, and we build it around uh, human experience as well. So we, we develop an artificial limbic system. We develop emotion. We develop the capability to capture a lot of the human elements in the AI. And that becomes something that might actually respect laws and traditions Mm -hmm. and the things that hold society together um so so i think that that's that's really my goal um in trying to raise awareness about explainability is to to try to make sure that people are on this path because there's there's a divergence right now in thinking in ai researchers between the learning side where, like, we can just do everything with learning and we don't need symbolic systems. Mm-hmm. And the more symbolic side, where, like, we need to represent things in linguistically grounded frameworks. Um, and I think that we need a mix of those two approaches. Um, and that will help us create AGI that we can interact with and that ultimately we won't control, but we can actually partner with um and be able to hopefully make better world for both agi and for the humans
0: that's very optimistic outlook makes me it's feel a better.
1: very optimistic outlook yeah it
0: yeah. makes me feel better uh for some reason my brain goes pessimistic in fact actually <laughs> that's not true in terms of agi i don't even know what to think because i feel like it's so far away from emergence i don't am i wrong about that
1: well we are we are far away right now right. i mean right now I I would be ecstatic if I could get a robot that had the planning capacities of a squirrel mm-hmm. right now. Like that, that could think like, oh, winter is coming. I've got gotta go store nuts. Right. Like um, so yeah. Um, but I, I think that ultimately um these discussions about AGI aren't off base mm-hmm. because it might be a hundred years, it might be two hundred years, but it's coming.
0: I see. I want to switch gears and talk about the regulation of something else. So we talked about the regulation of uh, machine learning and deep learning and making sure that these codes can actually tell us how they're working, what they're doing, and have some oversight. But I'm also curious about the regulation of data. Right? Because you have now corporations like Facebook or, or Google that have data on a significant percentage of the planet and they can sell your data. They can use your data. They can mine your data. They can learn about you. They can do whatever they want. There's this cool data data calculator. I forget. I think it's on the Washington Post. I'll link it below uh, for people who are interested. You can type in some personal information, which they're probably just stealing anyway and selling it if they don't already have it. And it will calculate how much your data is worth. And so – I did mine. They don't ask for anything super personal. It's like, I don't even think they ask for your name, actually. But it's like, are you married? Um, are you obese? That brings your, your va- value of your data up, actually, found out. If I told them I was uh, o- severely obese. In fact, if I told them I had, like, cancer, severely obese, if I checked, like, all the terrible boxes, then my yeah. data was worth a lot more. Um, yeah, I don't know why that is. I assume maybe I'm... If I- I'm like,
1: I, yeah. I think it's because of the current advertising structure. Mm-hmm. Um, because you want to sell targeted ads to people who are buying things, mm-hmm. and people who are consumers of healthcare are right. um, definitely some of the highest purchasing uh, yeah. groups, even if it's just their insurance that's mm-hmm. purchasing. So, yeah, you want to yeah. reach out to those people with advertising.
0: Right. So do you think we have to be careful going forward about that? In fact, I would argue that might be as important as regulating the, the use of this in industry, is regulating the way people are allowed to access your data. Uh, you well, know, one of I the, mean, what, go, yeah, go on. I was going to say, it, it would be interesting if companies like Facebook or Google had to pay you for selling your data. Um, that was in the user agreement is like we'll use your platform. you can use our data, but we get some value back. Um, I'm interested in concepts like that.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I personally think that people should own their data um, mm-hmm. and that the the assumption when these platforms were created um, by users, was that these platforms were created for the sake of communicating with their circle of friends Mm -hmm. and that the data would really not go out beyond their circle of friends and what's happened is a slippery slope where it's been understood now for many years that this data goes out way beyond your circle of friends um, and that there's a huge market for this data and sold but I don't think that most users have a visceral reaction to that um, until they can like see it in a graph or see the tracking happening. Yeah. Um, like like people who usually see location data tracking happening there, there's a good Ted talk on this are, are usually astounded by the level to which they're tracked.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I feel like, I feel like, Ultimately, that is going to be a place where, unless there's a major consumer option put forward, unless there's a new company that starts up and says, you're going to own your data and we're going to pay you for it, and that attracts people to that company's platform,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, there's not going to be a change in the existing business models. Right. Like nobody's going to upset the Google or the Facebook business model because they're doing quite well mm-hmm. by selling your data to advertisers. So unless somebody comes up with a new business model that can draw users away from those platforms, um, I don't see this changing with policy or regulation and they made the future.
0: Yeah, me either. And the huge elephant in the room is that people don't care. It's like most people, like you said, um, if you could visualize it for them in some way then they they care more but even then i i doubt most people would be like yeah i'm going to you know i'm going to use a different uh, version of facebook and
1: well i i mean, I, I, th- I think it's a question of what human incentives work mm-hmm. so so just knowledge of something like i mean i i was going to work for tor i'm very aware of uh privacy and security issues, I still use Google. Right. I still use Facebook because it's expedient because they have a network effect, because mm-hmm. all my friends are on it. Right. Um so until you can develop another company with a network effect, it's it's just not going to change.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I, I want to touch on one more thing before we end okay. the conversation. And that is The Humanity Centered Robots Robotics Initiative. This is an an interesting name to me. And I'm curious, uh, first off, describe your role in it. And second off, I'm curious when this started. Because there's some foresight here. There's some foresight that the world is going to be changing. There's going to be robots everywhere. We need to learn how to interface with them. How to incorporate them into our lives. And... We need to do it now, not next year, not two years. I don't see a lot of universities doing this. ROT, yeah. So, huge tech school not doing this. So so Brown
1: uh, started talking about the Humanities-Centered Robotics Initiative back in 2014. Um, so 2014 was really when the roboticists at Brown felt like there was – enough progress happening in robotics that this was going to start to spill over into the rest of society. Um, And obviously it was a university, so it didn't launch until 2016. It took a few years administratively to create the initiative. And um, I'm the associate director I joined in 2016. Um, And basically uh, our goal is to try to Internally within the university, get robotics out of just the CS domain and get it into other areas of the university. So get researchers who hadn't considered robotics as part of their research mm-hmm. to start considering robotics in what they're doing and how robotics is going to affect policy, how robotics is going to affect the workforce, how robotics is going to affect other factors um, in research. so, so we, we really wanted to do that. and, and the name the humanity centered robotics initiative came from the concept that we shouldn't be focused on the tech anymore. The tech the tech problems, while not solved, are on the path towards being solved. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really the, the question of how this tech interfaces with society. That, that needs to be addressed. So um, that's, that's really where that came from yeah. and where it's going.
0: It's one of the rare instances of being proactive that I see. Um, we have a problem, not just in America, but in the world, of being very reactive to problems. And I think that's why maybe why Andrew Yang touched a lot of people. Because it, it felt for once like we were getting ahead of something. Or at least trying to. Obviously, we're already falling behind, but we're getting ahead of the worst, which is yet to come. Um, and we don't see that a lot. It's a change of pace, and it's nice to see.
1: Yeah, I, I think that, you know, if you look at the way that uh, past economic uh, downturns, and specifically, I'm thinking the Great Depression, impacted the US in the long term like if i drive around where i live in new england most of the bridges that i drive over were built during the great depression mm-hmm. okay and a lot of those bridges are very well built and are still going to be standing for another 20 30 years and i feel like the the, the focus on building something for the long term Came out of the lack of resources that were around in the Great Depression. Everybody really trying to trying to find the work they could and, and do the best they could. And I think I think what you're going to see in this downturn that we're having right now is you're going to see a hopefully a renewed focus on building infrastructure for the long term, and that might be cyber infrastructure that might be artificial intelligence infrastructure that might be bioengineering and genetics infrastructure but i f- i am hoping that what's going to happen is we're going we're going to say okay you know the paradigms that we've run by for the past 15 20 years aren't going to work going forward and we need to get ahead of this and we need to adapt and we need to focus in My hope is that we'll focus in on localized production. Um, And I think that will help with climate change. I think it will help with uh, stability of resources. So the shortages that we're seeing right now um, as a result of increased demand uh, would be a lot easier to deal with if we had local production and we weren't shipping everything from China yeah so so my my hope is that this is going to be a hard period but we we make that shift through to find a a better economic framework
0: yeah i agree with you i agree with you uh peter haas if there's anything you want to promote or tell people where they can find you on social media and stuff please do
1: uh yeah so my name is peter haas i'm associate director of the humanity-centered robotics initiative i'm on twitter at peter underscore haas and, uh, yeah, I, I don't have a lot to promote, but, um, I'd be, I'd be happy to interact with anybody who has questions.
0: Yeah. Uh, Peter, you, you got the Peter Haas. You got the app Peter Haas. That's, Peter that,
1: underscore Haas. Yeah, yeah,
0: so, um, yeah, but still you got that one. I feel yeah. like there's a lot of... there might I don't know, maybe maybe Peter Haas is not a company. There, 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 there are a few of us out there. Yeah, so. I, I found it. And there's even a few in like um, sort of the... I don't want to call it the automation, but the CS type of uh, uh, industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I, I was like, no, that's the wrong website. No, that's the wrong website. So <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you for being here. People, thank you for listening. Now, I'm no doctor, but if you made it this far... You don't have COVID. facts okay listen thank you for listening rate the show five stars apple podcasts if you don't do it you're gonna get the coronavirus and that's a fact also okay we only share facts here if you don't rate five stars you're getting it you're getting it all right you're gonna be one of the 18 million americans that are getting it so you know it is what it is anyway thank you subscribe on youtube join the mailing list for updates emails giveaways you know the drill i you you hear it every week okay so just do it i'm sick of telling you guys to do the same shit over and over again and then you don't listen it's it's embarrassing this is why we have pandemics everyone tells you to stay inside you don't stay inside you keep going outside spreading it to all the old people all the old people are dying it's your fault so to prevent that what i'm saying is rate the show five stars on apple podcast all right we're out